historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. Today is the 12th of the Hebrew month of Cheshvan. Today, on Mount Herzl, the National Military Cemetery of Israel, there will be an extensive ceremony in memory of of our late Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. On this day, 26 years ago, a devastating societal, ideological, and political earthquake shook Israel to the core. It was Saturday night, the 12th of Cheshvan fell on November 4th. A young observant Jew, an ideological opponent of the democratically elected Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, made his way to the Kings of Israel Square in Tel Aviv. The square was packed with people, perhaps as many as 300,000, that were rallying in favor of the peace process with the Palestinian enemy. It was an attempted celebration of peace, although Israel was plagued with terror acts that aimed to derail any agreement, normalization, or peace. The young assassin took a public bus, stopping a few hundred yards from the rally. He continued on foot, once spotting the VIP vehicles of the government ministers and the car of the prime minister, he decided to hang there and wait. The police screwed up. They should have cleared the entire area. The Secret Service screwed up. They should have been more cognizant of the political threats on the life of the Prime Minister. The majority of Israeli society didn't fathom the option of an assassination by a Jew. At that time, it just didn't register in the hearts and minds of Israelis. As the rally started to wind down, the assassin took notice of an older man, surrounded by bodyguards, walking down the stairs towards the VIP vehicles. The assassin was tense, full of adrenaline, and waited for his chance to surprise security and accomplish his gross mission. As he was about to act, he saw that it was not the Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, but rather the Minister of Defense, Shimon Peres. For a moment, as he told investigators in his interrogation, he contemplated shooting Peres, but decided to wait for Rabin. A few moments go by, the assassin spotted Rabin walking down the stairs. Rabin had four bodyguards with him. One, that cleared the path in front after seeing a suspicious paper bag. Again, the police should have seen the bag and cleared it. It was an empty bag. Another guard walking behind the prime minister was making sure no one would get close from the back. He actually pushed off some people that wanted to greet Rabin. The third and fourth bodyguard walked on either side of Rabin. Within a couple seconds, the assassin swung around the back of Yitzhak Rabin and fired three shots. Two of the bullets entered Rabin in the center of his body. The third bullet hit Yoram Rubin, the security guard, in the shoulder. The assassin was immediately grabbed and cuffed. Rubin was rushed to the hospital less than a half mile away. Now, I'll never forget this night. It was a November night. The windows are open since the weather in Israel is fairly mild. I was living just outside of Tel Aviv. I almost fell asleep when I heard shrieking coming from the neighbors who also had their windows open. As I heard this, I figured something had happened, perhaps another terror bombing and turn on the TV. On the TV, I then saw a man named Eitan Haber, who was Rabin's right-hand man and assistant, come out of the Ichilov hospital and read a short declaration. Eitan Haber pronounced the death of Rabin. Having lived in an apartment complex, you could hear all the other apartments. At first, there was silence, and then another extremely strong shriek of disbelief. Americans above 60 years of age remember where they were and what they were doing when hearing the shocking news of the assassination of JFK, John F. Kennedy. Israelis remember 
where they were and what they were doing when Yitzhak Rabin was murdered. I asked Abraham Silver to join the conversation. Abraham's a senior educator and lecturer at Hebrew University. Welcome, Abraham. Hey, it's good to be back. It's always great to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Itai. My pleasure. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, I mentioned before where I was and what I did when Rabin was assassinated. So I wanted to ask you, where were you when hearing the news of Rabin's assassination? Where I was exactly was a little bit bizarre, which is where I was actually milking the cows. I lived on a kibbutz and you had to milk cows at night and I was doing the night milking and the whole thing became completely surreal. I then went up to Jerusalem to represent the kibbutz at his, um, uh, they had him lying in state for a day. And I have this really, really great story about going to Jerusalem and being there with all of the crowds of people, everyone bringing flowers, everyone bringing signs. And I actually overwhelmed with bringing the signs to the casket. And I got there and, um, you know, crying like everybody else. There were a hundred thousand people crying and, um, I was crying and I kind of handed, someone came up to me and said, it was the army people that were bringing up the signs to the casket. And someone came up to me and said, um, uh, do you want me to bring your sign? And I kind of looked up and half looked up and said, yeah. And then I realized I was talking to the Ramakal, to the head of the army, Don Shamron. And he took the sign and he walked halfway there. And then with the sign came back. Again, I had brought up the sign to represent the kibbutz with flowers from the desert and things like that. And he said, you are from, from Keturah? And I said, yeah. And he said, I met my wife there. Why don't we put this sign right on top of the casket? And then he went back. He was the head of the army. He went back and put the sign prominently on the casket where everyone from the kibbutz could see it. So that's a fascinating story also with the fact that the chief of staff, the commander of the army, is right there with you, which actually was almost the norm and the culture in Israel at the time. And yet that norm and culture changed drastically. And I guess what I want to ask you next is if you could tell us a little bit about the political background that led to the assassination. Because as I mentioned before, it was a total shock to Israelis. And yet there was something that was brewing that led to the assassination. Tell us about that. I'll start by saying that who Yitzhak Rabin wasn't just on one word. And that is that he came out of that labor Zionist movement. He was a leftist, but he was uh, understood about the defense of Israel. And so on the one hand, he was Mr. Defense in the sense of he was the head of the army. He was the defense minister. He was Mr. Defense as well as prime minister. But um, uh, but on the other hand, he had always understood that we were fighting in order to create the circumstances for peace. And he accepted that even cringingly so when he shook Yasser Arafat's hands in the Oslo peace process. He was going to make peace and get rid of the need for an army. And while that happened, there was a pushback within part of the community in Israel that was, first of all, was saying, how could you give up territories? The territories belong to us. Yitzhak Rabin had always believed in giving up territories. And then the Oslo peace process happened. The problem with the Oslo peace process was that it did not make Israel safer. In fact, it actually increased the terrorism. There were signs in the protests that saying this Oslo peace process is killing us. And that was actually true. The, the terrorism had increased, bus bombings and things like that. And so on the one hand, there was a tremendous pushback against the Oslo peace process failing. On the other hand, there was the movement that was saying, you're a traitor to us because you're trading land for peace or want to trade, tra- you know, trade land for peace. And what mixed in with all of that was what we call today the messianic religious, the people who uh, believe in some sort of messianic understanding of, of us acquiring the territories after the Six-Day War. And within that were radical halakhic Jewish law interpretations 
that he was a traitor and calling him a traitor rabbinically was actually asking for him to be murdered, assassinated or eliminated. Now, I just want to mention that that wasn't the that wasn't necessarily Jewish law that was followed by all the rabbis, but there were radical rabbis. And with that point, I want to tag on that and ask you about the murderer himself. You mentioned his name was Yigal Amir. Tell us about the murderer. What was his ideological motivation? Why did he consider Rabina a traitor? And again, tell us more a little bit a little bit more about the messianic fervor you was you were starting to talk about. There was this understanding after the Six Day War, which, by the way, Yitzhak Rabin was the head of the army in the Six Day War. When we captured the territory, specifically what's called the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, that that's the ancient homeland and that we, the Jewish people, are complete by owning the ancient homeland where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and and Leah and Rachel all traveled. That was where we came from, and now we belong there again. And that ideological connection to what they call Judea and Samaria meant that that made us whole. And the Six-Day War was God's message to us that we need to be whole as the Jewish people and the whole land of Israel. And when Rabin said, no, you know what, not in this iteration of a Jewish state, we will trade that territory so that we will have peace and we will not keep sending our children to either occupy or die in a war. They considered him a traitor. And once again, there was, uh, as you pointed out, very narrow rabbinical decisions that, that agreed with that. Most rabbis obviously didn't. Most rabbis in any kind of mainstream would never have said that anyone should get killed or anything like that. But his actions from that very radical fringe was saying that he's destroying the messianic concept that's here already. The other side of that was a fascinating phenomena that took place after Rabin's murder. And that was that the same square in which the rally took place in the same square where Rabin was assassinated was filled totally filled with mainly teenagers, 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 17-year-olds. I remember that the wax of the candles of litmus memory just completely uh, stuck to the ground. You couldn't even walk on the ground without stepping on wax. And what was interesting is these 16-year-olds, Rabin was old enough to be their grandfather. What, what was this phenomena of these young teenagers coming out? Well, I kind of think a little bit, I love the question, and I think it's one of the things that were incredibly difficult of everything that surrounded the Rabin assassination. And now we're talking about the Rabin assassination rather than Rabin himself. And that is, look, we were created in two ways. We, the state of Israel. One was that we were going to be a light into the nations, a utopian society that could show the world a better way. And that was a legitimate and still is a legitimate understanding of what our mission is. But the other one was that we wanted to be a nation like all other nations, that we wanted to be just like every other country in the world, and that the Jews would be what they would call normative Judaism. We wouldn't be odd anymore. And what's interesting is that we struggled with this concept of light into the nation. And as we struggled through the 60s and 70s and 50s even, of trying to be that country. All we got in response by the world was shunned. Boycott Israel and the great boycotts and everything like that. No one would sell to us. And we were shunned by the world. And then this incident happens where Yitzhak Rabin is murdered. And all we are is like everyone else that has political assassinations. And the whole world comes to his funeral. The first time Prince Charles comes to Israel is Rabin's funeral. King Hussein, the president of Egypt, And all of a sudden, the whole world is landing there. And all we can think of as a society is stunned that we did this, stunned that this happened within our society, and stunned that the world is embracing us. And we, the adult population, were completely like a deer in headlights. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it was the 16-year-olds, it was the teenagers who said, forget all that noise. We've destroyed ourselves, and we need to mourn. Mourn him and mourn us. And they went to the square where Rabin had been murdered, 
and sat down with Yurtzai candles, traditional Jewish candles, and sang songs and lit candles and sat there for a week during the Shiva. They were sending Shiva. The connection with him was a promise destroyed. He was presenting a better world where we would have peace, where they wouldn't even go into the army. And he was also, while he was their grandfather, he was this amazing figure, not only just of his ideological perspective, but he was the guy who fought in the independence war. He was the guy who was the head of the army in the Six-Day War. He had fought for Jerusalem. He was the prime minister during Antebi. And while all of that raised his stature, what he really was, was he was the grandfather. He was Israel. He was the first native prime minister. And he was us. Part of what we were was the hope of a better future. And it was destroyed by us. And they sat down in the square and they mourned in the most Jewish way possible. And while the adult population was stunned, the teenage population took over as understanding and guiding the whole country through this horrific time. And I will say this, after the week was over, at the end of the Shiva, there was a commemorative, I don't know what the right word is, commemorative moment, rally, whatever, at at the square. And what was amazing about it was that the most famous musicians of Israel, performers of Israel, walked on stage without introduction and just sang. And interspersed, there were speeches. But no one from the political echelon spoke, not the mayor of Tel Aviv or the prime minister or the president. The only people that spoke were 16-year-olds. And they led us from the beginning to the end of understanding what had happened and how Israel had been transformed and a hope lost. It's 26 years later, and you hear voices today, mainly from educators, that we Israelis did not learn our lesson, that incitement is still a tool used by leaders, and that the atmosphere time invites additional assassinations. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, we we did come together to, for, to a certain extent for a little while, but we didn't root out the values that led to his to his assassination, that those fringes, those fringes have a stronger voice today. And in the last two and a half years, the bitterness of politics, of Israeli politics, has brought back that kind of incitement and that divisiveness within Israeli society. And yeah, in many ways, we're worse off as a society. We didn't learn any of the lessons. We haven't come together. And in fact, what you see in the two and a half years of the political wrangling that's just happened, you see people screaming for other people's deaths as if the Rabin assassination was, you know, that they didn't understand that incitement actually led to that. I I would agree with that. We are not in a great place right now. I heard an interview with Rabin's daughter, Dalia Rabin, that actually runs the Rabin Center. She claimed that there's an understanding of Rabin, which isn't really the reality. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I I absolutely 100% agree with it. And in fact, I think it leads and helps lead to the divisive, which is one of the things that should have happened here in Israel, is that we should have all collated the fact that political assassination is horrible. And that was the lesson itself. But that's not what happened on both sides of the political divide. In fact, what happened on the left side of the political divide is he started to become Saint Rabin, Saint Yitzhak Rabin who was going to make peace and the peace was destroyed and everything like that. And they took him as this complete radical leftist symbol. And the rallies, which is going to happen in the square this week, are not rallies for reconciliation of society. They're rallies centered around hatred of the other side and St. Yitzhak Rabin. And in fact, that created part of the divisiveness. Half of this country who disagreed with him politically, but of course didn't think that he should be murdered, are left out of of the commemoration to say we're all one country and we can't let this happen to us. 
because they elevated him to be somewhat of a saint and their martyr and their their voice. And it's not even true, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yitzhak Rabin walked his own path. He was that military leader and he was that peacemaker. And he didn't shift to go from military to peace. That's not what Israel was ever about. He was always both of those things. And when he died, he was those things. And if you ask me, when Oslo fell apart a couple of years later, had he been prime minister when Oslo fell apart, he'd have gone to war again. So I think that the divisiveness is coming from both sides. And I think that his position in society, unfortunately, was usurped by one side rather than be able to have the assassination and his figure become that reconciliation for everyone in Israel. Abraham, thanks again for being with us. It's always a pleasure to hear you and your thoughts. Thank you so much for inviting me. To end, I'd like to reemphasize a point Abraham so eloquently stated. The time has come for the peace camp, the left-leaning political philosophy camp, to understand that first and foremost is our need to be unified society, a democracy, and only then to promote peace with the enemies. Because without unity among Israelis, we will have nothing to strive for. The time has also come for the Greater Land of Israel camp, which is the right-leading political philosophy, to understand that diversity of opinion and plurality are necessary, and that before the ideology of Greater Land of Israel, there should be one of unifying Israelis. It is time for the center camp, which makes up the majority of Israelis, to comprehend the important role it needs to play which is to lead the internal reconciliation process. Since the two poles, right and left, have not done so in the last 26 years, the time has come for the central camp to connect, moderate, and again, unite Israelis. As you remember Yitzhak Rabin, we Israelis must realize it is not too late to learn how to create unity rather than divide. If you like the Inside Israel podcast, please share. If you're listening via the Apple app, please rank us as five. You can access all of our episodes on Apple, Spotify, Google and Amazon podcasts and on InsideIsrael.fm.